Hello, this is the Angry GM, and you probably weren't expecting to hear my voice right now, uh, though I assume if you're downloading this recording and listening to it, you were expecting to hear my voice or else you wouldn't have clicked on it. But nonetheless, this is a surprise flash chat. Suddenly, I have decided to have an impromptu live chat. Mainly, uh, mainly I'm blaming Arthur and Decurion and to, to a lesser extent, Nox and Nitsua. But it's mainly Arthur's fault, the Angrions in the Discord. So, um, we we are here because what I'm what I want to do is talk through a thought process, which is something I find very useful to do. You know, this is you'll hear all about like the the rubber duck solution and, and what have you, and it's all the same thing. It's like one of the reasons why people talk is to think. Okay, so, and it is often very helpful to think through a problem by actually talking it out. Um, so what happened was this. A few days ago, or a week ago, or some time ago, um, uh, I, I put forth this comment in the Discord. I'm actually going to minimize the Discord because right now, every time the thing scrolls, it distracts me. And this is going to be one of those situations where I, I'm not going to try and respond to the chat until I've talked everything out. So minimizing the Discord, I cannot see what's going on. Um, this is just me talking now. So a few days or weeks or whatever ago, I made this bizarre comment. Actually, I think Mendel made the comment. So Mendel's at fault too. Someone made the comment about open world games and D&D or tabletop role-playing games and maybe that's not the best idea. Maybe D&D, you, you know, tabletop role-playing games or D&D. Ground rules for tonight, if I say D&D, just hear me say either specifically D&D or sometimes I'm saying fantasy adventure role-playing games and sometimes I'm saying all... All tabletop role-playing games that exist use context to determine whether D&D literally means D&D or it means the whole big thing because I don't want to have to be careful about that particular choice of word right now. Okay. So anyway. Anyway, the long story short is I made this comment that I was becoming convinced that open world game, open world exploration, open world adventure was something that D&D was actually really bad at and that the GMs who created the best open world adventures weren't creating open world adventures at all. And if you wanted to create a sense of open world adventure or open world exploration, you would be better off learning a bunch of techniques for how to fake it than you would be actually trying to create an open world, okay? And obviously, a couple of things came up, like the, the difficulty inherent in just creating an open world to explore, which need not be any... Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself here because I'm going to try... And the, the point is... I have had this these thoughts mulling around in my mind that D&D is the best way to create an open world game is to not is to is not to create an open world game. 
Okay, and I don't just mean like don't, you know, you can't really create an open world game so you just fake it. I mean literally you are more like, you will create a better game for open world exploration if you set out not to. Okay. So now, let me let me try, and like I said, this is me thinking this stuff out loud. Okay, I'm thinking through half-formed thoughts. So that is caveat number one. Actually, that's caveat number two, because caveat number one is, let me say D&D when I mean all role-playing games. Caveat number two is, um, I'm thinking through things, so everything's not final yet, it's not concrete, it's all still kind of up in stone, and so, like, I, I don't know where this thought process is going right now, or even if it's useful, but I'm pretty sure it is. Which also, by the way, means that no, this is not a preview for Slapdash or Smaforge or anything else. This is just me thinking through an issue. Number three caveat is at some point, once I have things reasonably finalized, this is going to be a bullshit article, probably in January or February. Um, so you're gonna hear all of this again, but you're gonna hear it better. So if at this point you just wanna shut this off and not bother listening, that's fine. And I don't know how long this is This is even going to go on um, because it probably at some point I am going to come back and, and let people ask questions and make comments and stuff because that's also useful. Um, but I also have no idea how long it's going to take to think through this whole thing that I've been thinking. Okay. Open world adventure, open world exploration. I started to explain in the chat that the beginning of this thought process was what, what I'm going to call that Ubisoft game um, and open world video games in general vis-a-vis -vis Elden Ring. Okay. I follow a lot of video game design and analysis um, channels, creators, stuff like that. I follow a lot more video game design stuff than I do tabletop role-playing game design stuff. And as I briefly explained in the, in the text chat, that is because I actually feel that video game designers and even the people who critique and write about video game design are much savvier designers than almost anyone in the tabletop RPG space. Um, they, and they usually are much, much better at solving problems uh, to the extent that, um, to the extent that to be a good GM, you are better off listening to video game designers than you are listening to, um, anybody in the tabletop role-playing game design space. There's a handful of exceptions, but they've all been laid off now, so. <laughs> Sorry, and I, I shouldn't have made that joke again. That started trouble earlier when I made that joke. But anyway, okay. So. When Elden Ring came out, and I realize this was like two years ago now, but when Elden Ring came out, um, a lot of the folks in the video game critique and design space started talking about how Elden Ring had done open world right. Okay, open world exploration, open world gaming, call it whatever you want. And before that, when Breath of the Wild came out, Everybody said Breath of the Wild did open world right. Um, now, I may not be the best person to comment on any of this because 
I only like so Breath of the Wild. Um, I didn't really care for a lot of it. I actually found it very disappointing in a lot of ways, and I only played it for about a hundred and thirty hours. So just enough time to find every shrine, literally do every side quest, uh, complete all the divine beasts, beat Calamity again, you know, the whole thing, um, and level up all of my equipment, every piece of equipment that could be found in the world, level it all up to maximum by gathering all of the materials for every piece of armor. So I might not be the person to comment on Breath of the Wild. Um, and as for Elden Ring... Um, it is my least favorite Souls game that I played, and I bounced hard off of it after, so I think I only put like 30 hours into it, so it was just long enough for me to beat Margit to Fell and get into the first Legacy dungeon. So, um, yeah, I, I understand I may not be the best person to comment on this, but also maybe that makes me the best person to comment on it for reasons that I hope I might get to if I remember to get to them and if that's where my thoughts actually go. But anyway, the thing is, in the video game space, there has been a growing sense that the open world game is kind of on its way out, that there's a little bit of open world fatigue going on. Okay, which is why there's a snarky remark referring to the open world game as that Ubisoft game, because it's all Ubisoft makes now. And we all know the type of game that we're talking about here, where, you know, you have a big giant map, and there's objective, mar there's towers, and, you know, objective markers, and you wander around the world, and there's, you know, you do this quest, and that mission, and this mission, and this mission, and then there's a story quest that leads you through the whole thing, yada, yada, yada. Um, okay. Blah, blah, blah. So we all know what we're talking about here. Okay. At the same time, amongst game masters, the open world game is seen as sort of the pinnacle of fantasy adventure role-playing games. Like, if you can do that, you're doing the best game you could run. Okay. That's like, that's the goal is to capture that sense, okay? And I think, on a, and I actually kind of think that may have followed from video games, okay? Because, like, there, there's been an interesting, like, if you look at this, the whole cycle of tabletop role-playing gaming, um... We went through that open gaming phase, um, and that, like, we had it back in the 80s, and it was called the hex crawl. You know, nowadays people call don't call it the hex crawl anymore, and now we call it the West Marches campaign. And yes, I real don't don't anybody correct me. I realize there's a difference between a West Marches campaign and a hex crawl. A West Marches campaign being a drop in and drop out variable players and sometimes variable DMs hex crawl. But nonetheless, we, you know, we've had the hex crawl. And the thing is, tabletop role-playing games actually evolved away from that because it wasn't, it, it, you know, players didn't really engage with it so much. And now, I mean, I realize that the, the, all the people in the OSR are screaming at me for saying that, but 
not for nothing, the OSR is, you know, in just in terms of marketability and popularity, the OSR is not giving all of the tabletop role-playing play players what they want. Okay, there's, you know, otherwise it would be a lot bigger and D&D would be a lot smaller. And I don't mean that as an insult. If you if people who enjoy the OSR experience are more than welcome to do it, but there's a reason role-playing games evolved away from that approach. But that aside, okay, getting back to, because I'm going to lose focus. Okay, so open world gaming. The funny thing is that when you actually learn about the design of both Elden Ring and the design of Breath of the Wild, one of the things you find out is that although, yes, they are open world games where you are meant to just follow your curiosity, here is the giant assist map you could possibly imagine, and you can go anywhere and do anything and just follow your curiosity and whatever, and you can do anything you want in any order, there's whatever. Nonetheless, um, they are actually very carefully designed to funnel most players along certain experiences. Okay, I'm not going to go so far as to say Breath of the Wild or Elden Ring are secretly designed to be linear experiences. They certainly are not designed to be linear, and you can break off the path, but what is interesting is many players just don't. One of the most famous revelations that came out is in Breath of the Wild, um, something like 80 or 90% of players did the, the elephant divine beast in the Rudo kingdom first. Rudo king? No, not Rudo. The Zora kingdom. Who are the Rudo? Are the Rudo even people? Did I make up the Rudo? It's the Rito, right? The Rito are, are the winged people. Rito bird people. Like I said, I only put like 130 hours into it, so I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Okay, so... And there are secrets in the world design where they did kind of funnel you along, like the, the designers at Nintendo purposely built the world to funnel players in that direction. And there were good reasons for it. Um, because there's a bunch of tutorial stuff that happens along that particular path. Uh, I, like... Uh, elemental arrows, you learn how to use elemental arrows and you're told to gather elemental arrows on your way up to Elephant Beast. Um, and things like that. There's there's just all sorts of stuff and you pass your first stable, you go through Kakariko Village where you get tutorials and, you know, the, the, I think the camera is introduced. There, all that shit. It all happens along that path and so... The designers wanted to funnel you that way, and they funneled most of the players in that direction. And then through, and they used other tricks in the world design too to make sure that players, like there were only two or three good paths to the 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 divine beast, the 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 elephant divine beast. But anyway, it doesn't matter. And you know, it's the same thing with Elden Ring and how it uses its world design to kind of funnel players along certain paths, okay? 
So obviously all the revelations and all the discussions are about how these, these games that did open world the best are actually secretly um, manipulating the players um, to create a proper play experience, which shouldn't surprise any. Like my jam is Metroidvania shit, right? That's that's my thing. So it didn't surprise me to, oh yeah, of course it's on rails. I know I played Hollow Knight and I played Super Metroid and I played Symphony of the Night and Bloodstained and all of those things. I'm no stranger to guided nonlinearity, which is what we call it when we present an open world to the players, but actually secretly are nudging them along the path at every step of the way. And to be fair, the folks at From Software are amazing at guided nonlinearity. They have been doing it since, um, well, you know, uh, I honestly, I recently discovered they have been doing it as far as uh, Demon Souls. So they're excellent at it. So that's no surprise there. But anyway, okay, so, so that, that's the first thing, right? So the best open world experiences in video games, it turns out, aren't open world experiences, but are actually secretly guided I'm not going to call them linear experiences, but they are linear-ish. Now, this shouldn't be news to anyone because the best gameplay experiences that you can get, I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into making a great gameplay experience, but among them all, is like pacing is a very important point, right? Like if the game is well paced, um, in, you know, in terms of both the narrative and the mechanics, you're going to have the best gameplay experience, right? So what, you know, like, um, in terms of, first of all, in terms of challenge, you want the challenge level that the game presents to be within the player's level of competence or very near to the player's level of competence throughout the entire experience. You do want it to wobble up and down a bit, but you want to keep it generally within a a certain narrow band. This is called a flow state, okay? It is when your level of competence is very closely matched to the difficulty of the task you're being asked to perform. Okay, and flow states are extremely important to player engagement. If you, if your level of competence is far below the task that you are being asked to perform, you become frustrated. If your level of competence is far above the task you're being asked to perform, you become bored. Okay, um, it doesn't, it's not precise because obviously you do want wobble. At times you do want to feel a little bit more um, competent than the tasks demand, and at times it is good for you to feel a little bit incompetent compared to the tasks. But it's all got to be close. So flow states are a big thing. In terms of narrative, because, you know, most most games we do experience uh, uh, some kind of story from them, either the game is telling a story or later on 
we are going to tell a story about our gameplay experience, okay, those are both narratives and they both come from the gameplay experience. And one of the most important things there is how tension and uncertainty rise and fall, but maintain a, a steady upward trend until they are released. This is also pacing, right? So it shouldn't be a surprise that the best play experiences overall, the ones that feel best, are the ones that are carefully linearly designed, okay? Now, I understand that's completely at odds with open world exploration. I will get back to that, okay? But actually, I'm going to get back to it right now because I'm going to say, on the other hand, um, the sense of freedom that comes from open world exploration, the ability to satisfy your own curiosity, be the master of your own destiny, go wherever you want, do whatever you want, um, that's, that is all... You, you know, many players thrive on that, okay? Not all players, and this is, this is where now we look at, like, the aesthetics of play, right? Which I love to harp on the aesthetics of play. And it is very important to remember that the aesthetics of play are things in the players' heads. And when we're talking about role-playing games, I literally mean players. I do not mean the GM. The GM is not playing a game. Okay, only the players are playing the game and the players are not playing Dungeons and Dragons. They are playing whatever adventure or campaign the game master is running for them, be it one that the game master has invented themselves or one that has been published that the game master is running. Okay, so what the what what we understand of the gameplay experience psychologically is that. Games provide a unique and flavorful blend of certain kinds of subjective play experiences. And while players all have different preferences for different kinds of experiences, um, everybody prefers a blend or a mix. So even though you can say, like, like different theories of gameplay have broken down the, the, the subjective play experiences people seek into different lists. My personal favorite is the one that was originally pre presented in the MDA design approach paper that was published in 2001. Um, but anyway, and that's the one I've gone on before where you have basically, there's, there's eight broad aesthetics of play, right? There's, uh, can I rattle them off without looking up a list? Let's see. We have Challenge, discovery, fellowship, submission, um, narrative, fantasy, um, sensory pleasure, and I'm missing one. I'm missing one. Huh. I guess I can't rattle them off off the top of my head. And I can't even remember which one I didn't, because now I'm pulling it up. Uh video games. Let me make sure I can get this right. The paper, by the way, is called MDA, A Formal Approach to Game Design and Game Research, um, published by Robin Hunicki, Mark LeBlanc, and Robert Zubeck. 
back in, like I said, I think 2001. So sense, pleasure, fantasy, narrative, challenge, fellowship, discovery, expression, sub- I forgot expression because I hate expression, uh, and submission. Okay. <clears throat> and so like when you tell game masters this, they immediately say, oh, so I can understand, like I have a discovery player and I have a challenge player and I have a sensation. And it's, it's like, no, it doesn't work like that. The reason people play games is because games blend these experiences together. If you purely want a narrative, then you will watch a movie or read a book. If you purely want creative expression, you will write a book or film a movie. If you purely want uh, a sensory experience, you will hire a hooker. If you purely want a challenging experience, you'll go run an obstacle course or you'll do a puzzle or something. I don't know. The point is that the reason people want games is because they mix a bunch of different of uh, different types of play or different types of subjective experiences together and a person's preference for certain types of games is a complex mixture of games that touch off certain things some people do really lean very heavily toward just one or two things and some people like games because they want all of it okay so it's really really important not to get um, wrapped up in this idea that there are players who are narrative seekers and there are players who are fellowship, yada, yada, yada. It's not that clean. Okay. Anyway, it's also important not to confuse discovery and exploration. Okay. Exploration is an activity. It is a dynamic. It is a way you interact with something. Discovery is the feeling of joy you get through mental mastery, through figuring things out, through learning and systems, learning a map, whatever it is. There's lots of ways to experience discovery. Um, exploration, specifically exploration of a world map, is, um, is an activity. It's in, in fact, it's a gameplay dynamic. It's a way players interact with the world. You have a world, you can explore it. You can explore Breath of the Wild. If you're not interested in exploration, you can still play Breath of the Wild. You just, you know, check off the quests on the, uh, you know, on the to-do list until you have killed all four divine beasts. Um, and then you go kill Ganon and you get the Master Sword, yada, 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 whatever, right? So you don't have to explore, um... Yeah, you don't have to explore Breath of the Wild. Okay, why did I get on the subject of MDA? Where the hell was I? Um, okay. Anybody in the chat remember where how I got to MDA? What was, I, what was the thought before there? Because I lost myself. <laughs> hmm. Okay, open world exploration, okay. All right, well, let's just, we'll start a new thought process and hope it connects. This is the problem with trying to talk stuff out, is like I have 10,000 different thoughts and I know they're all related and it's just I'm trying to get them to fit together. Okay. Oh, right. Okay. A carefully crafted, well-paced play experience. 
is always going to be preferable to a play experience that the players just kind of invent for themselves. Like, realistically speaking, if you just drop a bunch of players in a game world and say, go do whatever you want, some of them will have a grand old time um, because they will, you know, but, um, and some of them are going to have a pretty crappy, miserable time. And it's all down to what they choose to interact with and how, because, you know, like, uh, if you, if you wander in the wrong direction in, say, uh, in Breath of the Wild and you end up fighting Lionels before you're ready for them, uh, that is not a good flow state. Um, of course, the open world does kind of... No, that's it. I can't keep getting distracted. Okay, that's not a good flow state. Okay, a purely open world is good for players who really, really, really want an open world more than anything else. But for every other kind of player, the open world is highly risky. Okay, because it is basically the designer taking the reins off all the other aspects of game design in order to let the open world players go where they want and do what they want and, you know, experience the game in their, at their own pace in their own way. Um, and I'm, you know, and the interesting thing, by the way, is that that is not just something the discovery seekers like. Because there is a mix of experiences that comes from that. Okay, so when you sit, when you play, say, um, Elden Ring or Breath of the Wild, or you go back to something like Skyrim or Fallout New Vegas. Uh, Fallout New Vegas, by the way, being another classic example of a game that did open world right. Because again, the game designers did a lot to just funnel players through a curated experience, and they lied about it. Okay. So, anyway, so the point is, those open world games, they are not just good for the discovery seekers. If you are the sort of person who likes to lose yourself in a fantasy world and imagine yourself as a character in the world, which is fantasy, you also will tend to enjoy games like that. You know, you'll enjoy the Skyrims and the Fallout New Vegases and the Breath of the Wilds and whatever. Breath of the Wild, not so much because, you know, um, there wasn't much for you to pull on. It, it, I, that, again, getting off the... The point is, uh, and if you are an express... If you like to express yourself through play, then obviously choosing your own destiny is a big part of that. Okay, um, if you, though, are much more interested in narrative than fantasy, because there is a difference between... The, like, this is the thing. People hear fan... Nope, again, getting off track. Focus. Okay. Okay. But the point is that the open world is basically the game designer letting go of the reins and letting the player design the experience and just hoping that they'll have a good experience. Unless, of course, they are very, 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 very clever designers like the folks at From Software and like the folks at Nintendo and like the folks who did Fallout New Vegas, because that wasn't Bethesda, right? That was, that was actually designed by an outside team. But anyway, those folks are like, well, sure, we'll give you an open world. Wink. And then they actually build a carefully curated experience 
so that the players who absolutely do want the open world and the fact that all that other crap won't take them out of the world is, you know, they can go do whatever the hell they want. But the greater gaming community at large will mostly allow themselves to be funneled through the curated, designed experience. And they will say, wow, that was a great game. And not only that, I never felt like I got to choose my own destiny like I felt when I played Elden Ring. You know, I had never felt that before. And that was a fantastic other feeling as well. Okay. Now, all of this was now there are numerous videos that I have watched picking apart these designs at this point. And I recently marathoned every one of them that I could find. Okay. And, um, the best one is one, and I have to give Nox Eternus credit. Okay. Because he did post it in the discord in response to the discussion and several days before, even though it's one I watched months and months ago, because as I've said, I go through this in waves. Okay. So like I'm back on an open world kick right now, back thinking about it. I wasn't before and I am again, but anyway, there is a YouTube channel called Daryl talks games and Daryl talks games. His, flagship series, the, the thing that he does the most of, is a series called Psych of Play, where he, excuse me, I just burped into the microphone. Well, you never know what you're going to get with these flash chats. Okay. Psych of Play is where he actually breaks down video game design from a human psychology standpoint. Um, and either to teach a lesson about game design using psychology or to teach a lesson about psychology using game design or both because the best game designers are psychologists because at the end of the day, um, you know, designing a good game is really about understanding how people, uh, you know, what makes people tick. Okay. So he did an excellent video called you don't really want an open world game or something to that nature. Okay. You can find it. You go to his, if you just search Daryl talks games or psych of play, and then put open world game, you will get his video. And he runs through a lot of this stuff, but he runs through it from a psychological perspective and explains the whole drive toward open world video games is actually driven less by a desire for creativity uh, and more from a desire not to have your, not creativity, curiosity. It is driven less by player curiosity than by a desire not to have your curiosity squashed. Okay. He points out that the best open world games are the ones that are doing all sorts of tricks to lead you through the game and just never let you know about it because it, it's like this. If you like to explore a world and you like to follow your curiosity and go wherever it takes you, if the game never stops you from doing that, you feel like you are exploring, you're being allowed to explore, you're getting what you want. If the game is secretly doing things 
to keep you on a path, you will never know or care because you're getting what you want anyway. The problem is when someone wants to explore an open world, go see what's over there, what is that thing in the distance, only to run into an obstacle like an invisible wall and be told, I'm sorry, that that's just a graphic in the skybox. You can't actually see what's over there. You can't go to there. Then the player gets mad at the experience for stifling their exploration. So the key then is the best open world games are the ones that never seem to stop the players from doing anything. Your natural state is to believe you are exploring an open world until something happens to make you feel like you're not, until something gets into your way, until something tells you you can't, okay? It's called, he, he, there's a, it's a thing called psychological reactance. Psychological reactance being the, the natural tendency to rebel against rules and constraints. If you are told no, you get mad, which that's the simplest way to sum it up, okay? And his thesis, well, I'm sorry, his theory, his idea, the, the point of his, his video is it's not so much about the fact that the game gives you an open world, but rather that you never run into an obstacle that takes you out of the idea that it's an open world. And then it doesn't matter if it's really an open world or not. Okay. Why does all of this matter? And why is it worth thinking about any of it? Okay. One could argue, and like, okay, so here, here's the next bit, okay? Tabletop role-playing gamers games have an advantage. If you're a homebrewer GM, okay, you can effectively run an open-world game, okay? As long as you never tell the players no, okay? And... Which, basically, to run an open-world game, there are two approaches that a GM will take, right? Number one is the GM will either buy a published setting or module that is designed to be an open-world game, like uh, Pathfinder's Kingmaker uh, Adventure Path, I know, was designed specifically to be an open-world game. Um, and I want to say Tomb of Annihilation was designed to be open-world um, for D&D. So these were designed as open-world games. And what they essentially are is, is a big-ass giant hex map and enough information where the GM knows what's in all the hexes, more or less. Like, obviously, that's, that's a bit of an exaggeration because every hex doesn't have something. But it is basically a giant map with all of the locations detailed. So wherever, whenever the players go to a location, the GM can just run them through the location. And that is one approach to creating an open world. Let's call that the true open world. The GM literally has a pre-designed world that the players can explore of their own volition. The second way that a GM can run an open world is to run just ahead of the players and create the world in front of them. So if the players decide this looks like an interesting place to explore on the horizon, because 
you have given them a hint that there is something interesting there. And here's where we start to get really crazy. Okay, but no, let's not go there yet. Let's stay where we are. Okay, so you can just lay down a world in front of the players one hex at a time. And when the players get somewhere interesting, um, you can just, des- you know, design it and run it right then and there. Okay. And we, um, and I, th- like, I'm not, to see this, is, I, I don't want to get, I don't want people to confuse what I'm saying now as a semantical argument. The semantical argument being, well, if the GM is designing the world just one step in front of the players, basically running out in front of the players and laying hexes and dungeons down just in front of them, and nothing is designed until the players step into it, then the GM isn't really running an open world. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not making the argument that if the GM is creating the world under the player's feet, um, that the GM is not really truly running an open world. Okay. And the reason why I can't make that argument is because I buy Daryl's thesis that the real sense of an open world is not that there is a world you can explore. Players will come with that assumption until you tell them they can't go somewhere and shatter the illusion. And so for me to, to believe that, I then also have to accept that technically running ahead of the players, creating the world under their feet is an open world game. Okay. But here's the thing now. Okay. When a game master creates an open world or or runs a published open world, um, ahead of time, pre-creates the world, a generated world, a true open world, okay? Often, what the game master will then do, and this is, this is one of the, this is one of those arguments that is older than time, is I, here, in this cave, am putting a red dragon because this is where red dragons live. And if the players wander into this cave at first level and are not smart enough to run away or parley with the dragon or something, they are going to die. And that's just what open world exploration is and they must accept it. Crap like that, right? But this is, that's sort of like an assumption of the generated open world. That the world exists external to the player's adventures, and whatever is out there is out there, and if they wander into it at the wrong time, well, fuck them. Because it's an open world, baby. That's what you get, right? And there is a belief that this is somehow necessary to create a true open world. You know, there's the argument that, well, the world, if the world levels up at this with the players, then it's contrived and it's not really open exploration. But now you get into this question of, now you have the other GM, the GM who's laying the world down one tile ahead of the players at every step of the way. Is that GM going to decide well, I am going to put a cave with a 20th level dragon 
right in front of my players because that's an open world and this is where the dragon lives and I sure hope they're smart enough to run away. Some GMs will. Some GMs won't, though. And it's that difference of mentality where the whole idea of RGMs really running open worlds, and more importantly, should GMs run open worlds, that's where the whole, the earthquake happens. Okay. Because let me explain to you something else. The concept of the open world video game, okay, is a response to the constraints of video games. Okay, that is, you know, back in the early days of video games, like in the earliest, earliest days of video games, um, you had one screen platformer puzzle type games, right? You know, there, there is one screen and your job is to jump up all the girders to get to the monkey and rescue the girl, right? Okay, and that was it. You can move left or right, you can jump, you can climb, that's it, right? Over time, as the technology has expanded, video games have been able to include more and more possibilities. They have gradually been growing and growing. And the main reason that that's happened is because ultimately people want the more open-ended experiences, right? Except we know they really don't. They just don't want to be told no. So fast forward to, to I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to credit GTA 3 here. I, I, it wasn't, I, it wasn't technically the first open world game, but it's the one that gets all the credit for developing the experience. Okay. And the reason it was revolutionary is because that's exactly what it was. It was the first video game that most people experienced that was just, here's a giant ass map of shit to do. Go do what you want. There's missions, of course, and there's stuff, but also go wherever, do whatever right? Here it is, your open world game. We have finally figured it out. We have finally removed the invisible walls, removed the constraints. You can actually just go into our world and play in it, okay? And from there on, the open world has been gradually expanding and expanding and expanding. And so you get like the, the Elder Scrolls series, right? Um, which started out like the 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 develop even of the first open world uh, the even of the first Elder Scrolls game arena um was such a fascinating issue of gigantic rampant uncontrolled scope creep um to the point where the name became an anachronism because the game had nothing to do with what was originally proposed for that game but anyway so like the Bethesda game right, became, like, here it is, this is, you know, when Skyrim came out, well, how, like, what, 20 years ago now, 10 years, 15 years, when did, you know, it's, we're talking decades here, and I'm feeling old, but when Skyrim came out, and again, while, like, Elder Scrolls games had been doing this for a while, and in some cases, like, people will point, people who are fans of the Elder Scrolls series will point out that Skyrim was the dumbed-down version for the console tards. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, what it did was it basically brought the open-world fantasy role-playing game to the masses. I know uh, 
Oblivion was on consoles, but it wasn't the same. It was Elder Scrolls that did the thing, right? And Elder Scroll or Elder or uh, whatchamacallit, um, uh, Skyrim was essentially back in the day. It was 12 years ago. I just looked it up 12 years ago. That was the game that did the open world right. It was, this was what a fantasy adventure role-playing game in an open world was supposed to be, right? So this is what, what video games have been doing is they have been gradually breaking down their constraints to the logical end point, which is essentially here is your Far Cry map of the island or your crisis map of the island or your, um, or, uh, like, oh, well, not Saints Row. What's the, the, the counter-terrorist guy with the grappling arm, with the grappling gun? Um, Jesus. It's like, he's always, he's toppling dictatorships in, uh, whatever. Just Cause, thank you. The Just Cause games, right? Where the, the you know, or again, we go to, because I looked at the chat to see if somebody had the answer. Or again, we go to like the Ubisoft game. And every game that has, every open world game now follows that format of climb the tower and then you unlock that part of the map and then scattered all over the map or, you know, here's, you know, X number of strongholds and X number of side quests, and here's the next main mission, right? The, the standard open world format. And then along comes Breath of the Wild and along comes Elden Ring and says, screw your open world games. Let me show you how it is. No map markers, no, uh, you know, no climbing tower. I mean, Zelda had tower climbing, but they did it completely differently. And um, it's funny how one little change makes all the difference, by the way, because, um, what Zelda, what Breath of the Wild did to, to the Ubisoft tower was it said, yeah, here you climb the tower, unlock that portion of the map. But if you want to know, if you want any map markers for any interesting locations, find them yourself. You know, scan, scan the horizon and then use your, your, your Sheikah iPad to, to plunk down your beacons. Blink, blink, blink. Right. So it was the same thing. It was just, find out for yourself, which is another point that Daryl made is that really if players just want to figure shit out for themselves and if you, if they have to figure shit out for themselves, if they have to figure out where to go, that is no different in the player's mind than choosing where to go. If you make a puzzle out of where do you go next, then somebody who loves exploration will mistake solving the puzzle and, and going to the right location to discover, oh yes, I got the answer correct. This was where I was supposed to go. They will mistake that for following their own curiosity. Okay, in all of these, all of these points, I swear, all of this comes together in something very, very important. Okay. Anyway, the point is the open world video game is a response to, or it's an attempt to overcome a limitation of the medium. 
Okay, it is video games needed invisible walls. They needed constrained spaces because you literally because the hardware literally couldn't handle anything else, and the game designers couldn't build anything else. It was just it was impossible to build a literal open world. Now we can do it. Okay, and the more and more we've done it, what we discovered is so. Even the Ubisoft Tower thing, let me go back to the Ubisoft Tower thing because I've been disdainful of it. But there is a reason for that, okay? And the reason for that is if you didn't have the tower and the markers and stuff and you just dropped the players into this map, that game would suck, um, like, because it would be just a matter of wandering the world, looking for anything interesting to do. And there is so much more world than there is interesting things to do. So Ubisoft and all of the other, all of the other games and, you know, your witchers and everything else, they all figured out, well, we will use various features of the HUD and various gameplay um, elements to show players where the fun stuff is. Okay, so even that was a response to the fact that, yeah, we can build an open world, but if all we did was build an open world, it would be unplayable. So we got to have something. Okay, and what Breath of the Wild and Elden Ring really did was come back and say, maybe you need to build something that isn't an open world and make it look like an open world. Um, because again, when you have the open world, you're throwing out so many other aspects of game design. When you let the players pace the game themselves, they kind of suck at it, you know, and players will do, players will ruin the fun of a game for them if you let them. Okay. This, this is true, but also like, like, imagine if you just picked the wrong direction. Like, if you just happen to wander, um, you're wandering across the, the Breath of the Wild map, and by some staggeringly unlucky quirk of fate, you, you're constantly turning and changing direction, and you just happen to weave between literally everything interesting, okay? You never run into anything. You don't find any camps. You don't find any whatever. Or all you find is... The, or you just wander right into the Lionels and you get smashed. Or you wander right into the Guardians and you get killed. Or, you know, you, you wander and you find, you know, whatever it is. If you're determining your own experience, um, there's odds that you're going to determine yourself right into a sucky experience. Through no fault of your own. Okay. All right. So, here's the thing, though. Tabletop role-playing games never had the constraints that video games had. All tabletop role-playing games begin with the presumption of an open world. And in theory, players in tabletop role-playing games will never, ever run into an invisible wall. If the GM is any good and the GM does their job, players will never discover that the open world that they are in 
is not an open world. It is one of the core assumptions of the tabletop role-playing game genre, that yes, this really is an extant world and you can go anywhere and do anything in it. Okay, As long as the GM does nothing to take the players out of the experience, they already have an open world game. Okay, Tabletop role-playing games don't need to emulate Breath of the Wild, they don't need to emulate Elden Ring, they don't even need to emulate the Ubisoft game, or Just Cause, or Grand Theft Auto, or anything else. They don't need to do that, because the ex those open world games are the overcoming of a constraint of the video game medium. A constraint tabletop role-playing games don't have. Okay. There is no point in trying to create Breath of the Wild in Dungeons and Dragons because Dungeons and Dragons is already much better at Breath of the Wild than Breath of the Wild is. Sort of. Because now we have because we have a whole different set of constraints and that's the the punchline to this is there are actually constraints but they're completely different. Okay. But here's the idea now. Now we have all these people saying, man, I loved playing Elden Ring. I loved playing Breath of the Wild. I would love to create that experience at my tabletop role-playing game table. Because obviously you do, and it is an open world, so of course you should be able to. And so game masters try to emulate the experience. They try to figure out what is it Breath of the Wild is doing, or Elden Ring, or Skyrim, or, you know... Fallout New Vegas, or any, pick your open world game of choice, or the Ubisoft game, whichever one you want to do, okay, they now try to emulate that, which is, it's wrong-headed, because role-playing games already don't have the constraints that open world games were invented to break down, okay, to some extent, if you are trying to run Breath of the Wild in D&D, you are reinventing the wheel after you smash all four wheels on the car. Like you're smashing the wheels on the car and then saying, well, I guess I got to invent a new wheel now. Okay. And it was that, that I mean, that's the beginning, like... <laughs> All of that, where, what are we now? Have I been talking, I've literally been talking about this for an hour. I have just been yammering for an hour about this shit. Holy crap. The only thing more stunning than that is that people have actually been listening to me for an hour. Okay. Because what's really funny is we just got to the start of my thought process. Okay. Okay, this, because I begin with the recognition that tabletop role-playing games don't need anything special to make them open-world games. Okay. But, if you try... Okay. So now let's go back. Um, Yeah, Knox says something interesting. I did open up the chat for a minute. I guess this is sort of the... The uh, the intermission, right? Uh, the hex crawl feels more constrained to me than just a regular TTRPG game. You can see the walls more obviously. Isn't that interesting? Okay. Okay. So, 
here is the thing now to remember about the open world game. Okay? When you decide to make the open world game, when you're a video game designer, one of the things you are sacrificing is all of the other... I say one of the things you're sacrificing is all of the things... Okay. One of the things you're sacrificing is all that stuff about pacing and flow and, you know, everything else, building building a perfect narrative, yada, 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 right? Building building a good gameplay and narrative experience, a curated experience. One where the players run into all the challenges just the right time. They never find a key before they find the lock that it fits. They, you know, the, the foreshadowing comes before so that they always have a chance to discover the information they need before they need it. All of that stuff, right? All of the stuff that you can do in a totally linear game, you give up when you say, okay, here's an open world, just go have fun. Okay. Now, if your players are the sort of players who love open world exploration above all else, and that, like, that's the one thing, then they won't care whether or not you throw away the curated experience for the open world game. But if you have any other players, and odds are good that you do have lots of other different, like, that there's lots of different desires to play the game, different reasons to play the game at your table, and you have, like, if you have the player who just wants, I just want to Elden Ring. I just want to Breath of the Wild. Okay. If you have any of those players, you probably have just one. Maybe two. Okay. But in the meanwhile, the other players, they're in it for all sorts of other stuff. And they're going to benefit more from the curated experience than they are from the open world experience. Okay, because the curated experience gives a better gameplay experience to more players. And remember when I say curated experience, I mean the, the one where you carefully, you make sure the challenges match the players and you make sure that the, the, the clues come before the puzzles and the locks come before the keys and all that stuff, right? Like, you know, and the, the rising action comes before the climax. All of that stuff, however you want to put it, call that the curated experience. All of the players at the table benefit from the curated experience more than the one player who loves the open world benefits from you throwing it out so that they can just go wherever they want and do whatever they want. Okay. But tabletop role-playing games offer a unique opportunity for you as the game master to offer both, which is something video games can't do, okay? Because here is the thing. If you are laying down the adventure one step in front of the players, Boop, 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 boop. Um, so that any direction they go in, 
they will feel as if they had they did any direction they go in, you're ready for it. There's game in front of them because you're just laying it down one step in front of boop, 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 boop. But at the same time, when you're laying down that game directly in front of the players, if you are a savvy designer, you're also laying down a curated experience. Okay, you're making sure that the challenges match their level of competence, or if, if the challenges don't match the level of their competence, you're making sure that you have telegraphed that in advance and have left them an escape route because you have deliberately chosen at this point in the game for some purposeful reason to present them a challenge they cannot yet defeat because you're foreshadowing something later or you want to give them something to shoot. Like there's a thousand different game design reasons to let them see a challenge and face a challenge before they can actually beat it, but it's a deliberate choice. So if you're laying down the experience directly in front of the players, then you can give them the curated experience without ever breaking their sense that they are exploring a world freely of their own volition, okay? Moreover, okay, if you want, let's say you do want a more plotted experience, okay? Let's say you don't want to build Breath of the Wild and instead you want to build Link to the Past, Okay, where the players will proceed through a number of plot points and then reach, or, or Dark Souls. Dark Souls kind of worked the same way. Dark Souls wasn't as open as it seemed. But let's say Link to the Past. Instead of Breath of the Wild, you want to build Link to, the, uh, Link to the Past. Okay, so here it is. You know, they wake up and there's an incepting moment and then, the, you know, the goal carry, you know, the first goal, rescue Princess Zelda from the castle. And then you discover that the wizard has taken over the castle. And now you have to go see the wise man and the wise man points you to the pendant. And then he points you to the other two pendants. And you can obviously go get either pendant, but you can't actually, because if you try to get the wrong pendant first, you will discover that you can't cross the landscape. You can't get up Death Mountain to the moon tower without uh, going first to the desert. Uh, and getting the power gloves. And then when you get to the dark world, you get, you know, you can do some dungeons out of order, but basically, you know, it's a linear experience, right? Let's say you want to do that. Okay. Will you make your exploration-based players unhappy? And the answer is probably not. Okay. Because remember, number one, everybody is sitting down to a tabletop role-playing game already believing it is an open world knowing they can go wherever they want, they can do whatever they want, and they will always find adventure because that's how these games work. It's an assumption of these games. Okay, so long as you never do anything to break their sense of that, they will happily think they are freely exploring a world. There are some tricks you can employ, you know, um, with smoke and mirrors, to make the world seem bigger and realer all around them, okay? But that those are very different from actually building an open world, okay? But there are tricks you can employ. On top of that, if the players do start to feel that the path is kind of linear and that they're not really being allowed to explore, 
then you can also employ the trick where instead of telling them where to go, give them the clues and several possible destinations and let them figure out where to go. And most players will mistake that for exploration. Okay? And, you know, and so the best skills for building an open world game of exploration in D&D is actually not to even try to build an open game, but just build whatever the hell game you're building anyway and use smoke and mirrors tricks to make sure that if the illusion starts to falter and if the players start to feel like it's not an open world, you can quickly make them believe that it is. And it is that sense where I said that tabletop roleplay, the, the game masters do not run open worlds, they fake it. Because it's not just, oh, I'm laying down the adventure in front of the players. It's that the good game masters who are laying down the adventure in front of the players are also doing a bunch of other things too, like using soft guides instead of hard, like instead of hard quests, using soft clues. Or like using a number of different tricks to make the world seem more alive. Or, you know, the, you know, things like that. Or letting the players figure out where to go instead of telling them where to go. Things like that. Or using the, the right visual aids to convey a sense of an open world when really, you, you know, the GM is actually building a curated linear gameplay experience one step ahead of the players, except that a good GM is also thinking several steps ahead of the players because... Remember that if the rule is that they need to see the lock before they need before they see the key, then um, you know when you decide to lay a lock in front of them, you have to write down on a sticky note that you need to put the key in later, and you need to decide where the key goes. And of course, most GMs don't even do like it's not. Like, these are the two extremes. The one extreme is design the whole damn world and let the players play in it. The other extreme being, you know, design the world one step in front of the players. Most GMs don't do either one of those. Most GMs who lay down the world in front of the players, they're actually working a session or two ahead of the players. Like, they know the players are going to this dungeon next week or this site or this town or whatever. And so they will plan out that whole dungeon or that whole town or whatever which means the laying down the world in front of the players part is really only something that they tend to do in wilderness travel or when the players unexpectedly arrive at a destination early, like, oh, you got to the town the week before I thought you were going to get to the town and now I got to kind of pull the town out of my ass for two more hours until I can run home and design the rest of the town, right? So... That is the that is why I do think it matters whether the GM is faking it or not, because a GM can build a better gameplay experience overall by not trying to emulate an open world. Okay, the open world players will be happy if the GM does certain things right, but the open world players will also be happier because. In reality, you know, 
The open world player who wants to to just explore Breath of the Wild of their own volition still also wants ultimately, you know, a good flow state, good pacing, a good goal, some good revelations. They want all those other things that games promise. It's just that they want to stumble on them themselves. Okay. And, you know, the people who have the, you, you know, like all the people, like if you listen to the stories people tell about their experiences playing Breath of the Wild and the, the wacky time they had in this one Bokoblin camp or whatever, every one of those stories that people actually share about their Breath of the Wild experience or their Elden Ring experience, if you listen to it closely, is a well-paced narrative, okay? It is, it is, because people naturally tell stories as narratives, okay? Some people are much better at telling stories than other people, but people organize things into stories. So if the gameplay emerges such that it, you know, it follows a good narrative structure and provides a good flow state and all of those things, that's the experience that the player remembers and then goes on the, the forums or to his friends and says, oh my God, I was playing Breath of the Wild last night. Let me tell you what happened, right? So I'm wandering around the southern shore of Lake Hylia, right? Which, by the way, uh, right there, as soon as someone says that, which is a normal thing that most people start the stories with. So I'm, so I'm just wandering. I thought, you know, I was wandering down in that area, right? I Because I, I was farming dragon scales or whatever, right? That's your, like, that's that's your act one in a story right there. It's like, it was a perfectly normal day and I was living my perfectly normal life when suddenly, and so, and then I saw this Bokoblin camp and there was a silver Bokoblin that had spawned and I didn't realize that silver Bokoblins had spawned already in the world. I thought, you know, I didn't think I had, blah, 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 they tell the story. So the best experiences are the ones that accidentally match everything else you want from gameplay other than the exploration. So once again, the best thing you can do as a GM is to make sure your game is providing a curated experience no matter what direction the players wander in, but to make it manageable for you and because the game, like on a campaign level, the game benefits from having a long-term goal, a sense of progress toward that goal, yada, 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 you, you know, and then plot points rising, you know, there's a good structure to a campaign. It also is good if you can curate things on a long-term basis and say, okay, these are the plot points. And that is where you then start to use your tricks to let the players think they're going where they want to go and think they're following their curiosity when really it just leads along the path you have already laid. Okay. I think actually, I think actually that hit a coherent conclusion, right? Okay, that the best thing to do, that the best thing a GM can do if he wants to build an open world is not to try even try to build an open world, but just to build whatever the frig campaign he wants to build and trick the players into thinking it's the open world. Okay, because you'll get a better experience for both the open world players and everyone else that way. 
And then, of course, just never, ever tell your players what you're doing. And this is always, I, one of the things that terrifies me the most, by the way, about sharing this stuff is some of my players are members of this community. And I am always terrified that one day I'm going to say the thing that breaks my game. Okay, I'm going to reveal the one ugly, dirty, nasty little secret that I've been doing all along. And they're going to suddenly, one in the game, wake up and say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is exactly what Angry said he was going to do. And I've been tricked into thinking that this is just, you know, that this is a wonderful world to explore. And really, it's a lie, and he's been leading me through the nose. And then I'm going to trigger psychological reactance by revealing the truth. Except also, most of my players are GMs. Okay? Which means, as much as I have that fear, I also have to accept that, to some extent... They are the people who bought tickets to the magic show. They know it is a trick. They are willing to, to, to participate in the illusion. Okay. As long as during, like, here's what I could do to ruin it, by the way. If during the middle of the, if in the middle of my game, I stopped in the middle of gameplay after they figured out some riddle or puzzle or something. If I stopped and said, hey, you know what's funny is um, that's exactly what I was talking about the other day where I said I'm going to trick you into thinking it's an open world when really it's not. You just played right into my trap. That's it. They'd leave the game immediately. Because then I w- that would be the equivalent of me saying, all right, did you, did you like the trick? Okay, here, let me show you show you the secret now. You know, and that would be it. That would ruin it. But I do still live in fear all the time that I'm going to reveal the one thing that one of my players, like one of my players can't unsee, and then I'm going to lose their suspension of disbelief forever. But anyway, um, yeah, I think that, w- that went really well. So I'm going to open this up to questions and comments. Um, Arthur's still here, so I haven't like offended Arthur. Um, because he, Arthur and Woosh were the most angry at me of anyone when I said, a GM can't run an open world, a GM can only fake it. And the best GMs who run the best open world games are faking it the most. Um, that was... That upset them both. And I do understand. Okay, uh, by the way, if you're going to ask a question or pose a comment that you want me to uh, respond to, the rule is you have to end it with the the red exclamation mark emoji or the red question mark emoji. I've just posted them in the chat. Otherwise, I miss them as they scroll past. Okay. Um, and I've run into this obstacle before. Okay. When I, a long time ago, when I said, you know, from a, like, if you really analyze things, fate cannot, strictly speaking, be considered a role-playing game. 
I had a very good reason for saying that, and I explained it. Um, um, but there are value judgments attached to anything, and when people value things very highly, okay, even if you are making an intellectual point, um, the, if you say something that is perceived as an attack on something people love, or as devaluing or breaking down an idea, um, people just, it, it is upsetting. And I understand that I probably shouldn't have said faking it. Okay, because honestly, what it really comes down to is this. As I explained, the whole journey of open world video game design has been a lesson in trying to figure out how to fake an open world the best way. Okay, because it turned out the best way wasn't actually to give a real open world. It turns out that the best way was, you know, um, was was an open world that funnels you through it and hides that and does all these other things. Um, and by the same token, game masters are trying to figure out the best way to capture all of the different things that make tabletop role-playing games, tabletop role-playing games. So it's not any different than what the designers of Breath of the Wild were doing. Okay. There were some other ideas that also didn't come out tonight. Um, one of the things is, of course, the um, one of the things that I did bring up uh, just briefly, or I don't know, I don't remember if I brought it up or not, is um, shit. Oh, the idea of the the pre-created um, open world right? The open world that the GM creates in advance, and then it is objectively real and the players can just explore it. In that, in that case, one of the limitations of tabletop role-playing games is that most GMs just can't do that shit. Whereas, you know, Breath of the Wild and Elden Ring and even the smaller open worlds, they all have massive teams of people creating huge amounts of assets. And even they rely very heavily on repeated and reused content. Um, you know, like, it's amazing to, to notice, like, even in Elden Ring, how, how many of the caves and how many of the little catacombs and all the minor locations were just repeated or it was just like components. Um, it was sort of like the, uh, the chalice dungeons in bloodborne. Um, and the same thing in breath of the wild, like obviously breath of the wild, you know, the, the big problem I had with it was, uh, uh so apart from the mechanical design, okay. Apart from how, things like the combat and the crafting system were designed and how they played together, how the combat and the healing worked together and stuff like that. Um, but really apart from that, the big thing about Breath of the Wild was there wasn't enough in the world to make it interesting enough for me to explore. Like, yes, there were, there are pretty vistas to look at, 
Um, and then there's like the first time you see a dragon and stuff like that. But in terms of like, there weren't that many NPCs, there weren't that many interesting characters, there weren't that many, like all of the shrines looked the same. Like they were all based on the same art assets. Um, and the, they were pretty limited in terms of what they asked you to do. So they designed this whole gorgeous giant ass world and there just wasn't much in it, you know? So, but anyway, okay. So I do have a comment now because I've actually been talking to fill the silence while people ask questions and made comments, but nobody has questions or comments, which means I assume everybody agrees with me and I have revolutionized everybody's thought process on everything. So Arthur is saying, I am not offended, but one of the things you mentioned was that no GM goes to one extreme or the other, so I'll be noodling on how far towards the open world extreme you can get before it gets completely unimaginable. Okay, noodle away, but one of the things that I'm going to ask you is, why are you trying to move to that extreme? Why, like... If you can create a very, very, a, a very satisfying open world exploration experience without going anywhere near that extreme, why is that extreme worth approaching? You know, as the game designer, not as, um, not as, you know, like the player experiencing it. Assume that however you do it, the player is going to have a wonderful open world experience. You know, why are you as a GM then trying to lean towards any extreme, you know? The one exception being, if you had a table of five people who all said outright, we love Breath of the Wild and that's what we want you to run and nothing else, then I could kind of see that. But So Hatelift is asking, how damaging is it to the magic trick when GMs discuss anything related to how they make the game while it's going on? Like saying how enemy resistances are decided, how long prep took, etc. Okay, I'm going to preface this answer by saying this is one of those things I suck at. Okay, this is a mistake I make all the time. And there are ways to do this really, really bad too. But as a GM... You should not at all ever during gameplay discuss anything that reveals that it is a game you made, okay? You should never ever during gameplay remind the players they are playing a game, okay? The, the question, how damaging is it is a uh, like that's a wrong-headed question because the thing is there's no good reason to do it you can do it after the game you can do it between sessions you can do it if the players ask questions but there is no good reason to just start telling the players hey it took me six hours to make this or you know, this is how I made this, this, uh, whatever. Okay. There's no good reason to do that unless you want them to applaud for, you know, how awesome you, you know, all your awesome work. Okay. If you're fishing for compliments, there's a reason, but I wouldn't call that a good reason. But for the most part, there is 
no good reason during the game to talk about the fact that it's a game. Which means if it is even just a little tiny bit damaging, you shouldn't do it. Even if the damage isn't severe, even if it's just like a paper cut of damage to the magic trick, since there's no good reason to do it, there's no, there's no way it's going to improve the game experience, don't do it at all. Okay? I do it. I'm stupid. Okay? The, and one of the words, like, I can't stop myself. Like, when I run a published adventure, this is what I cannot stop myself from doing. I cannot stop myself from critiquing the adventure. And let me tell you something. No matter how well you run a published adventure, because you can run a published adventure well. It doesn't matter how bad the public. It doesn't. The published adventure doesn't matter. Um, it, what matters is how you run it. You can run a shitty published adventure great. Okay. There is nothing. There is no way you're going to improve anybody's experience by stopping your game to say, "Hey, look, I know this game sucks." Um, and here's why. Okay, pointing out the reason the game sucks is a terrible way to get people to enjoy your game. And for some reason, I just, I don't stop doing it because I'm stupid. But anyway, no, do not discuss. Like I said, if after the game, if people want to ask you questions, then you can answer them. But even then, like why? If someone's genuinely curious, they say, hey, how did you make that map? Or how long did it take you to do this? Or uh, just out of curiosity, why was that creature resistant to fire? That doesn't make sense. You're going to answer that question. But if somebody's not asking, then why are you volunteering the information anyway? Okay. Is it, and I would ask again, look very firmly at your motives. Is there a good motive behind volunteering the information for how, telling players how long your prep took? Okay. Otherwise, just don't. Don't talk about the game as a game. Honestly, I'm of the opinion, and again, I'm very bad about this, and I suspect most GMs are. I'm of the opinion that the GM shouldn't participate in the conversations about the game. At the end of the game, when the players are talking about the game, and they're like, oh my god, remember when we did that? That's awesome. Hey, what are we going to do next week? We're going to have to figure out how to deal with this, how to, figure, how to deal with that. That the GM should just shut up and let the players talk. Okay? I don't feel that the GM should be in those discussions. I don't shut my mouth. So I, you know, I always jump into those discussions. Now, it's different if you overhear the players making plans and then they say something stupid and that you know it's wrong, like, um, or you remind them of something. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, we we don't know, you know, we have no idea what this guy is. And, you know, and you point out, well, don't forget that witness did tell you that he's a werewolf, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Like, you could jump in with a little reminder, like, this is a fact about the game that you should know, and here it is. But beyond that, just get out of the conversation. You don't need to talk about your game. Isn't it enough that you ran the game? Um, that said, in my very particular case, um, I do think I am somewhat justified in talking about the design of my games sometimes. And that reason is specifically because some of the people who have chosen to sit at my table are fans of mine, are fans of my work, and specifically joined this community 
to learn how I run games. And so, with that understanding, I am a little bit more upfront and say, hey, this is an, you know, I designed this this way or whatever. Not during play. And you should never do it during play. You shouldn't even do it during the session. If somebody wants, if you want to talk about how it was done, do it between sessions. But, you know, I, and I have had players ask me questions from that perspective or like, how did you create that, that, that map or whatever you did? You know, what program did you use or whatever? It's okay to answer those questions, but uh, anyway, I'm just rambling on because I'm waiting for other red question marks or red exclamation points to pop up. And if nothing pops up very soon, I'm going to shut this off now because I've now done another 90-minute live chat, The other, which poor Ratter Crash, I'm keeping him busy now. Okay. Hokey Boat is commenting. My takeaway is that the trick to guided nonlinearity is the GM laying down in parallel puzzle pieces, laying down in parallel puzzle pieces of varying complexity for a couple of different encounters so that while players are working through one encounter, they are also putting the pieces together for the next one. That's an interesting takeaway because I don't think that I said that. Um, and I don't know if I necessarily agree that that is the trick. I will say that is a useful technique to learn. It is a good tool to have in the toolbox. Okay. Um, and it is certainly a good way. Um, yeah, I, it's a, it's a good tool to have. Um, but I'm always, you gotta be careful whenever anybody says the trick or the factor or the important thing is like, there's not, you know, I don't want to be mistaken as saying this is the one point I made. I just, like, the whole point of me talking through that whole thing was because there were a lot of points in there. There was, there was a lot of thought process that I was working through. And I, I'm still not sure it's done. Because I'm still not sure what to do with this shit. Okay. Mac Chaos. How do you feel about revealing things about the game after the game is over, whether it's the entire campaign, the end of a one-shot, or the session? Does that still damage the player's immersion in retro stuff like revealing what they did not encounter? Or if they as well, you know what? Like I'm I'm browsing the rest of the question, but well, this is my question. Again, why are you doing it? What's your motive for doing it? Okay. They experienced the game they experienced. Okay. Um, like, why tell them what they missed? Actually, I can think of reasons. I can think of reasons. I mean, I guess it's okay. I guess once the game is over, then it doesn't matter. If the players ask you questions, answer them. Okay, but like I said, don't stop, don't let them stop the game during the session. Okay, and don't give them any spoilers. That, it's as simple as that. Uh, Will DeCurian is asking, will you consider approaching an article on tips and tricks for guided nonlinearity? 
Um, uh, I, uh, I will, but I still have to figure out how to write the article that I was just thinking through and whether or not like <sighs> tips and tricks for guided nonlinearity. The, <laughs> trying to figure out how to answer that and to say why I'll do it, but. Okay. There are ways to do it well, but there are an infinity of ways. And the best game designers are the ones who figure out the new ways to do it. Okay, it's like, look, I, I, I mean, to some extent, the whole Mega Dungeon series, which I hate bringing up because, yeah, but the thing is, like, the whole Mega Dungeon series was a essay on guided nonlinearity. Okay, but really, the trick to guided nonlinearity is less having a list of tips and tricks and it's more understanding how people make decisions and how how does how you think through that problem okay which is why i would say that the best thing to do is number 1 play a lot of games that do it well okay play them critically play Play the game and then think about the experience when you're done. And number two, do what I do and watch, like, find find a bunch of different designers um, that you that you find particularly interesting to listen to. You know, find find your list of Daryl Talks games and Adam Millard's and Ingenious Clowns and Rasputin and uh, Joseph Anderson and um, and all those all the other folks. You know, find your list of them, and then when there's a topic you want to explore, go see what each of them has said about it. Okay, because a lot of these topics are things that that um that a lot of different designers will talk about the open world thing. Like I could probably build a playlist of here's what you should watch. If you want to, to, to talk about open worlds in gaming, maybe, maybe I should, in fact, maybe I should go through my YouTube subscriptions and just put together the playlist of things that all rattled around in my head to create this mess that I have just spent two hours talking about. Okay. But here, here's, here's your homework, Decurion. If you want to learn more about guided nonlinearity, um, there is a YouTuber named Mark Brown. He goes by the channel Game Makers Toolkit. He did a series called Boss Keys. Okay. Um, watch the entire playlist, every video beginning to end. Okay. There is, there's a lot in there. The, the beginning is more 
the the beginning is focused on Legend of Zelda dungeons. So it is more of uh, linear or, you know, explore line, explorable spaces that are basically puzzle boxes. And then he moves on to, um, then he moves on to more open world stuff. You know, and he works through, he works through the Zelda series. He works through the Metroid series. He does Hollow Knight, Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Then he goes on to the Dark Souls series. Um, uh, so, yeah. So, anyway. Maybe off topic, Hatelift is saying, what does OSR disappoint in its players that more modern games like 5e satisfies? Yeah, I'm not jumping into that one tonight. Okay. But I'm going to say, I'm going to say this, okay? It doesn't really matter. Like, you, I, it's, that's a tough question to answer. It's like, what are they, what are they doing differently? But what you have to understand is that basically... The conceit behind the OSR, okay, the driving, um, the driving idea behind the OSR is that if you pick a point in the history of tabletop game design, you can pick AD&D first edition, you can pick white box, you can pick, um, BX, you could pick Bexme, you can, you know, whatever point you pick, okay? Gaming peaked then, and every evolution that came after was a mistake, okay? That is essential. The OSR is a romantic movement, okay? It is, to some extent, it is, you know, it is not necessarily saying that progress is bad, but it is saying that the specific progress that tabletop role-playing games made, especially D&D, were all wrong. They, they all took gaming in the wrong direction. Okay? So, on a fundamental level, if D&D has been growing steadily in popularity with every edition, and it basically has been. We know this, okay? Then the belief that it actually hit its peak of game design in 1984 is just wrong on the face of it, okay? Because... A game is a subject, subjective play experience, okay? It, it, it's a subjective entertainment experience. The more people it satisfies, the more it's doing right. Now, I realize that you have to be careful with an argument from popularity. Um, that said, that there are people who, who say, like, D&D is only, you know, people only play D&D because it's the popular one. And it's like, nope, it's the popular one because people play it, okay? And people play, well, it's always been the biggest one, so nothing can compete with it. And I'm like, yeah, once upon a time, MySpace was the biggest social media platform that existed, okay? These things can get toppled, okay? D&D is doing something right because people keep playing it 
and more people keep playing it every year. Whatever you want to talk about with game design, okay, if you want to actually analyze the game design of Dungeons Dragons and other tabletop role-playing games, you have to start from the thesis that Dungeons and Dragons is satisfying a large portion of the fantasy adventure player base, okay? That is not to say it is perfect. That is not to say it does everything right. That is not to say there aren't better ways to do it. Of course, all those things are possible. But the idea, you know, all the excuses, like, you know, people need to learn that there's other games other than D&D because D&D is the worst one. It's like, no, it's, it's, it's actually not, okay? The, the fact is, most people actually like what D&D is doing. And if you want to make a popular role-playing game, you would be very, very wise to pay attention to D&D. I dislike D&D 5e immensely. I think D&D 5e, like, I don't want to run it. And I think, actually, that's one of the biggest problems with D&D 5e, is that every year, fewer and fewer game masters want to run it. Okay, players love to play it. It's doing that right. Okay, but game masters are turning against it. Okay, they don't want to run it. You know, so, but anyway, getting back to the OSR, okay, the OSR satisfies a certain player base. It, it is happy to satisfy that certain player base. The OSR is a niche group. It is a, it, it's a, you know, a subculture of tabletop role-playing game that has a very, very specific set of engagements, and they have built games that they and they specifically like to engage with. But these are also games that most of the rest of the role-playing game community rejected by evolving past them. Okay, so to some extent, like, can I sit there and analyze what OS, what the OSR games aren't do, uh, what OSR games don't do that modern games do? I can. All I have to do is basically give you the patch notes that carry D&D from first edition to fifth edition, because it's basically that. Every, you know, like, you know, and to another extent, it really doesn't matter because you can't, like, like, I can't point to what, like, there's no way to point at one mechanic, okay? But anyway, D&D was very nearly toppled by Pathfinder during 4E days before 5E turned things around. That is actually um, an overstatement. Um, at its height, Pathfinder had a 50% market share. Okay, that is, that is, um, so D&D and, so basically, um, in general, D&D has something like a 90, 90 like, had, the, going into, into fourth edition, in third edition, D&D had something like a 70 or 75% market share. And all of the other role-playing games had like 25% of the market. That is, of all the people playing role-playing games, 75% of them were playing D&D, okay? At its highest point, don't quote me on that. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. Nobody has the exact numbers. 
Um, there are ways that the industry has kind of surmised the numbers, but anyway, at its height, Pathfinder was approaching a 50% market share and D well, not 50, but half of basically Pathfinder's market share, uh, man, it's, it's late now and I've been talking for a long time. Pathfinder's market share equaled D and D. Okay. That is Pathfinder and D and D for a very brief period of time, I think like two quarters had an even, the, the portion of the market that they shared was equal. Okay. And then 20% of all gamers were playing other shit, something like that. Okay. That is not the same as Pathfinder nearly toppled D and D Pathfinder did not nearly topple D and D. Okay. And it was not for very long by the by. Okay. Nitsu is saying, what do you like to run best selfishly as the GM? I don't know. What, I, right now, AD&D 2nd Edition, because that's what I'm running. I, I, okay. Parting shot here. Nobody post any more questions or comments, because they will not get answered now. Okay. I don't really care what I'm running the end of the day. I like running fantasy adventure role-playing games. And at this point, anything that I've run well enough to know how to run, that I can run comfortably, that I can run kind of seamlessly, I, is my favorite thing to run. Okay, Last year, my favorite thing to run was D&D 3rd Edition. This year, my favorite thing to run is AD&D 2nd Edition. People have not noticed that... Um, that what I refer to as the best edition of whatever or the best game is whatever I happen to be running currently. Okay. I do have a soft spot for all versions of D&D. Okay. I lean toward D&D more than anything else. I do run other stuff. People think I've only ever run D&D. People think I do not have experience running games. I have broad experience running lots of games in lots of settings and lots of genres. My absolute favorite thing to run is fantasy adventure. It's what I know. It's, it's what resonates with me. It's, it's my favorite. And D&D is what I grew up with. It has, like, if that ampersand, you know, it's, it gives me a warm fuzzy. So, in fact, that's probably why I am so hard on 5th edition. And to be totally honest, I was also very hard on 4th edition. Okay? I was really brutal on 4th edition when I turned against it. But, looking back on it, I also have to admit that 4th edition was full of a lot of really good ideas. And that they really needed, if it had been iterated on, it could have been a great game. And 5th edition now is the one that I've turned against and I'm disappointed. Who knows, when 6th edition comes out or, you know, 1D&D &D or D&D, &D, you know, whatever they decide to actually call it, because now they're just going to call it D&D, &D. which by the way isn't news because 5th edition is also called Dungeons and Dragons. It's not called D&D &D 5e or D anything else. It's just got Dungeons and Dragons on the cover. And 4th uh, edition just had Dungeons and Dragons on the cover. And... I mean, 3rd edition did actually have a version number on the cover, which was weird. 2nd um, edition did have the 2E in it. But anyway, you know, 
when sixth edition comes out and I like it at first and then I start to hate it, uh, then I'm probably going to turn around and say, you know, fifth edition actually had a lot of good ideas. And, you know, so asking my opinion on the game engine is it's I it's sort of useless. <laughs> it's like, I don't I, I don't you know, whatever I'm running is what I like. So, you know, right now it's AD&D 2nd Edition. I love that. Except I don't. AD&D 2nd Edition, it's a terrible game. Okay. AD&D 2nd Edition is the, the edition of D&D I ran the longest. Okay. It, it really is. But it is, it's a mess of a game. It's terrible. But there are some things in there that I actually really, 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 really love. Um, like, I actually really love the way it hands. I would love to have AD&D 2nd Edition's initiative and turn order system with 5E's monster design. Because that's the thing I'm missing from AD&D 2nd Edition is... The monsters are shit. Okay, they're they're all just they're all really they're they're just shit. And I really do I like my tactical combat game. So, you know, I think okay. Pin me down. I probably like to run third edition the best. Yeah. I don't think that's changed. I think I do. Third edition, the best. Anywho, I got to call it a night because now I have—I basically um, stopped stopped playing video games to come and talk through things for two hours. Yeah, I—not that I'm complaining about stopping to play video games, do this, but I don't know what I'm saying at this point. It's tired. I'm late. Nope. Nope, strike that, reverse it. Anyway, thanks everybody for listening in. Thanks Arthur and Nitsua and Dekurian for making me do this. Uh, and also, um, yeah, so I hope there was something edifying in it. And I hope it wasn't so bad, you know, I hope it was edifying enough that you're going to be happy to read, read a 5,000 word written format of it in two months. Because that's where this is going. Um, but yeah. But it is, it's a non-trivial thing because man, like as soon as you get to this, this whole open world exploration thing and all that shit, because as I said, this is, all this stuff really lives in two places. Okay. Mostly it lives in wilderness travel. It lives in traveling across the world. And some of it lives in town mode. Okay. The problem is if you want to build a tabletop role-playing game that is going to topple Dungeons and Dragons. And by the way, that is not Slapdash. Don't mishear me. I'm not talking about Slapdash when I say that. I am talking about none but the, the game that will come after. Okay. If you want to build a game that has a chance of actually toppling Dungeons and Dragons... You have to figure out how to do 
the wilderness and the town because Dungeons and Dragons can't do it right. And every game that tries is also screwing it up. Okay. It is way more important if you want to build a good fantasy role-playing game that is going to dominate the market to figure out wilderness and town than it is to write a good combat engine or even a good action resolution mechanic. Okay. Essentially, you need the game that is going to facilitate people running a fake open world game. 